he is well aware that he has been characterized as a monster who murdered his estranged wife. That's the perception that is out there. I think he finally decided that he wanted to counter that. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news story? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters. Every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Brought to you by Hackensack Meridian Health. Visit our partner site, NBCNewYork.com slash HealthU, to help you on your health journey. Hackensack Meridian Health, life years ahead. Sometimes in our local news TV biz, we get accused of using the word exclusive a little too often. And you know what? At times, we have to own that. But for this edition of the Debrief Podcast, we are owning it because we do have an exclusive interview and a story that has captured the national imagination and certainly the imagination of the tri-state, a missing Connecticut mom. Hello, everyone. This is David Ushery, an anchor on News for New York at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. with this edition of the Debrief Podcast. And we're happy to have with us the I-Team, Sarah Wallace, because Sarah, in our parlance, this is what we would call a big get, an interview with Fotis Doulis, the estranged husband of a mother who, as we speak, is still missing. And we always point out as a caveat for the podcast, the story could change, it's dynamic, there could be developments, and there you go to NBCNewYork.com or News 4. But broadly speaking, you were able to get him to sit down one-on-one. -on -one. want to get to the specifics of that, but just take us to that point. Usually, in cases like this, a person uh, who's at the center of it doesn't talk. Lawyers don't let them talk. Tell us how you got this. Well, I think one of the things that happened here is that there has been a lot of demonization accusations against both Fotis Dulos and his live-in girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, who have both been charged with tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution. At some point, I think that he just wanted to come out and tell his side of the story, and that's what happened here. He admits to you, he says, I know in the court of public opinion, usually the spouse uh, is the prime suspect in this case. Uh, so they take the narrative that they see from the arrest, the arrest warrants and what is being reported in the press, and they draw their own conclusions. So I've already been convicted in their mind. We, nobody has been found. Um, she's technically described as still missing. And as you said, they're accused of hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. But Sarah, uh, one of the things you told me you learned in this is that we've been using the word estranged and talking about the tension among them. What did you learn in the interview or what did he tell you in the interview? One of the surprising things to me was that there has been a characterization that this is a bitter, ugly divorce and custody battle. There are five children involved. And the perception is that this is so ugly that maybe he wanted to do away with her. That's the public perception. In fact, he claims that in recent weeks before she disappeared on May 24th, they had begun to reestablish communication, that they had spoken by phone, they had even been in touch with each other personally, and that he had gone over to the house two days before she disappeared to have dinner with the children. Two days before she disappeared, uh, she invited me to play basketball at her house with the kids. And I did. And then I had brought dinner, uh, which I typically served out of the car because we would go to parks. And she said she was going somewhere and she said, well, you can't eat at the car. Uh, you, you should use the, the, the table at the back of the house. At the 
that surprised me. And he made it very clear that he believed there should be joint custody for the children, that they should have a mother and a father, and that it didn't work out for them, but that he didn't wish her any ill harm. There were certain questions you couldn't ask. Those were some of the agreement with the attorney, certainly the specifics of the case. What kinds of things couldn't you ask that, of course, listeners will be wondering as they've heard in the public? His attorney made it very clear that he wasn't going to talk about the legal case, and we respected those parameters. One of the big questions, of course, that is still lagging is what happened after Jennifer Dulos disappeared or leading up to her disappearance. The arrest warrant claims that both Dulos, Fotis Dulos, and Michelle Traconis, or people appearing to be them, deposited plastic bags in trash receptacles in Hartford, Connecticut. That video has not yet surfaced. That surveillance video that authorities say they have has not been turned over to the defense. So we don't really know what's on it, but they've claimed that there were 30 separate times that they deposited plastic bags in receptacles. Clearly, that is potentially damaging evidence. We haven't seen it. We don't know the details. We don't know the details of the forensic evidence that they claim that they have. They say there was DNA on the faucet in her kitchen. But he also claims now that he was at the house two days before. Mm -hmm. I see. So her, her blood, as you said, DNA, some with his, and this purported videotape evidence, which we haven't seen. And the defense, frankly, you pointed out, is waiting to see it with what we call discovery or more of it discovery has not yet been turned over to the defense. What they want is any forensic testing. They want any testing of that. They want surveillance camera video. And by the way, along the house where Photos Dulos lives, there are surveillance cameras that would have captured when he left and when he returned that day. That has not been turned over to the defense. You asked him whether he missed uh, or felt badly for uh, Jennifer Dulos and her family. What did he tell you? He told me that his heart goes out to the family, that he prays for the family, that he is concerned about Jennifer's well-being. What he's most concerned about as well is that he is not allowed to have contact with the children, with the couple's children. They're missing their mom, and I'm sure they're missing their dad, and I'm here, and I will be able to support them and help them through this time. You can't even call them? I cannot. They are currently staying with their maternal grandmother. He has been cut off from any contact with his children. And by all accounts, when you visit his home, as we did, this appears to be a man who was devoted to his children. Everything in the house revolves around them. The garage is set up for all their toys. The outside is set up for a playset, a trampoline. He, and you don't feel it was necessarily staged or presented that way? I certainly did not feel that it was staged. And I spoke with two of his friends who were there. And they've known the couple for years and years. And this is no act about this being a devoted dad, at least according to them. So I've seen him play with his kids, do homework, uh, speak to them in Greek. Um, he would go downstairs, play Lego with them, organize games. We'll peel back some of the layers here as a reporter. This is fascinating. Why did he decide to sit down and talk with you? And then I want to ask you more about the experience that day, how it unfolded, what you thought when you went in the room, what you thought as the interview was playing out. Why did he decide to sit down with you? I think that, well, his attorney and I have known each other for a very long time. 
I covered a case where he was the attorney for a woman who was dubbed the Manhattan Madam. She was a mother of four who ran a brothel on the Upper East Side. After that, he knew, he followed my career. He knew my reputation. And I think that he felt in this case comfortable with going with someone that he knew would be fair. And that's what it's all about. It's just about being fair here. And he felt it was important to get Fotis Doulis' point of view out in the public realm? Yes. He is well aware that he has been characterized as a monster who murdered his estranged wife. That's the perception that is out there. I think he finally decided that he wanted to counter that, even though he says he is not really concerned about the tabloids and what they're saying. He also added that the people who know him know that he didn't do this. That's what he's really concerned about. Now, the people that know me, both in the United States and in Greece, they have a different opinion. They have been very supportive. They know who I am. They know that I could have never done this. Her family representatives said there's no way that she would harm herself or do anything to leave her five children ages 8 to 13 behind. Correct. There's no, there, there is no doubt that this is a tragedy. This woman has disappeared. There has been an incredible investigation about this. They have assigned 40 investigators working around the clock to try and find her. And so far, she's still missing. All right, so you've done this a long time, Sarah. You walk in now, you meet this person who is probably the subject of a white-hot glare spotlight. What's it like? What do you say, and how does it unfold that day? You know, David, for the last five days before this interview, I was looking at my phone every two minutes thinking, this isn't going to happen. Right. This can't really be happening. He's going to cancel. We're going to get there. There's going to be 20 other news crews there. This isn't an exclusive interview. That's the anxiety often uh, investigative reporters such as yourself go through, right? That's right. Uh, You're never uh, sure yeah. until, in fact, I was not sure until I sat down with him in the chair I agree. that this was going to happen. Something was going to go wrong. That's what you think. Okay. Now you get to that point and you find him, he seemed composed, at least the part of the interview that I saw, and relatively calm given the weight of the scrutiny that's upon him. He was very direct and he was very unflappable, I think I would say. Did he seem rehearsed? Not at all. He did not seem rehearsed to me at all. He seemed very directed, understanding and his attorney was there, mm -hmm. that he would not be talking about things that could affect his case when it's presented. And you know this is going to go to trial. There's yeah. no doubt about it. He's going to take it to trial. I, he, there is no indication that he has any plans to take a plea, that he is going to do anything that one himself indicated. And we have to stress, as of now, a trial on evidence tampering and hindering prosecution, as it stands right now. Right? He has not been charged with murder. Is it possible down the road yeah. that there could be additional charges? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So that, and then uh, I understand there's also some legal proceedings with uh, the divorce, which he's trying to end now that she's not, or she's missing, I guess, and then custody of his children. He wants to be able to have contact with his children. He wants to be able to see them, talk to them on the phone. And by the way, it's not just him but his entire family is not allowed to have contact with the children. That means his sister, who is the godmother to one of the children, can't speak with them either. 
that is painful for them. And I think their argument is that the children are vulnerable, they're confused, and you have cut off a lifeline for them, in a sense, with their family on one side. They're with the maternal grandmother? They're with the maternal grandmother who wants custody assigned to her. All right. Well, fascinating case. Anything else we should share since we have this uh, window uh, into this case that no one else has had so far, at least not this extensively? I think one of the things that surprised me and I didn't know is that his relationship with the girlfriend was a real relationship. A lot of people have said, oh, she's just the girlfriend, and they throw that term around. She had moved into his home with her daughter, who is now 13. This was a blended family, according to him, and by all accounts, it was. I have seen a number of pictures of them together, the five children that he had with Jennifer and Michelle Traconis's daughter, and he speaks of her as his own daughter, as his sixth child. I don't think that that's an act. All right, well, we'll continue to follow it. I know you'll be in front of it, but nice work, Sarah, and thanks for uh, sharing a little more insight into this exclusive interview that we are willing to call it. I'm your host, David Ushery. We want to thank our producers and editors, Leah McBain, Jesse Edwards, and Ben Berkowitz from the NBC New York digital team. We'll see you next time on The Debrief.